Matthew chapter 2. Let's begin in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men, or magi, your Bible might say, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. So we're going to look at this a little bit. Matthew begins here with the introduction. Jesus is born, and he says, behold. So he wants us to check this out, focus on it. This strange appearance of these magi from the east, they themselves are almost as strange as the star that they follow. It's remarkable how much we don't know. We're so familiar with this story, but there's so many details in here that we don't actually know, uh, particularly about these guys, who they are, how many there were. We don't know. People guessed three because they gave three gifts, but um, we're not actually sure. Uh, we're not actually sure where they're from. There's guess, guesses as to Persia, Babylonia, Nabataea. There's some historical guesses, ancient writers, church fathers guess different things or mention different things. So we're not actually sure where they're from. Some of those areas had a Jewish remnant that they could have gained some of the prophetic truth from that they're probably following. Again, we don't know. Stories of them as Gaspar, king of Tarshish, Balsazar, king of Chaldea, Melchior, king of Nubia, are really not true. Um, there's some legends out there and things where we don't know that. It is cool that there's these true servants of God that we don't know anything about coming from places we don't know about. It's just another sign that God's always working in ways that are beyond us. We don't always quite know what his resources are. And we don't have details about their, their person particularly, but we are clearly given their intent. Again, verse 2, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. What Matthew wants us to focus on is that. All the other details are left out because we don't need them. And they would actually crowd out what the real emphasis is, which is them coming to worship. This king, this child, his star, they say, in the east. And the Holy Spirit is going to put the emphasis there. I do think it's always important as we're reading the Bible, we want to stay and do our best to stay where his emphasis is. That's why we teach through the Bible Genesis to Revelation, we want our emphasis to be his emphasis. We don't want to tell the story that the Holy Spirit isn't telling. And it's very easy to get caught up in all those details. Who were these guys? What was happening there? What, what is the picture behind them? There's, there's a bunch of details, but obviously God doesn't need to give us those details because that's not what the focus is. The focus is them coming to worship this young child. Matthew, of course, being a Jew, this, this record would convict Jews who should have known and recognized him. It would also encourage them in ways because the Messiah was one that the Old Testament said 
would have nations coming to worship him, not just the Jewish people. So there's a prophetic part of this that's being brought out. But our focus there is their intent. Now, verse 3, it says this. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. He's very troubled. The idea is the idea of the word troubled there is shaken up, stirred, thrown into confusion. Uh, it, it was an issue. Again, we have kind of the flannel grand pictures of three guys on camels riding around. It was most likely not that. These guys likely had an entourage that they were traveling with. They were very wealthy traveling in that day, particularly carrying a lot of wealthy items uh, or expensive items. You would be highly uh, likely to be robbed or focused on for that. So these guys are probably traveling with a number of people with them. They, as magi, whatever their specific job was, because in different cultures they played a little bit of different roles, but whatever their job was, they were always very respected. They were uh, sometimes even used in the choice of kings in places. They would be consulted on various issues. They were usually high-ranking government officials. So whatever their particular roles were, where they were from, these guys are very respected individuals. So showing up in Jerusalem and asking about a king, number one, would cause a stir. Doing that where Herod is, is definitely an issue because Herod was famous for being suspicious of people. Uh, the stories of all those that he murdered, you can find very easily. Uh, some say between six and 8,000 people in his reign. Anybody, even people in his own family, that he caught any type of wind or rumor of might be uh, trying to set up their own kingdom or get rid of them, he would just kill them, torture them. He was a pretty horrible individual. So when these guys show up and begin to ask this question, and it says, Jerusalem and the king are troubled, that is not an exaggeration. I'm sure the situation became something that everybody would hear about and they were talking about. So there's this kind of public understanding of these guys being there. Now, it says this, verse 4, And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod calls together the religious leaders, and he wants to know, is, is this king supposed to be born? Where is he supposed to be born? They know immediately, and quote Micah 5.2. The people were aware of this. The religious leaders were aware of it. And John, we were just reading a little bit, John chapter 7 ago, where the people were talking, talking about Jesus. Is this the Christ? And then other people in the crowd were saying, it doesn't say the Christ comes out of Galilee because they thought he was from that area. So they were arguing. They knew that the Messiah was supposed to come from Bethlehem. Jesus was not known to be from Bethlehem, even though he was. They, they thought he was from the area of Galilee. So the, this kind of conversation had happened 
would happen about Christ. The people understood the Messiah was supposed to come from a particular place. Intellectually, they knew that. And they could answer Herod directly when he asked them that question. Now, it says, when he has that information, then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. He has this private conversation. We're not sure. Maybe he doesn't want the public to know that he's interested. Uh, Maybe he just wants to keep them uh, thinking that he has good intentions. It seems like they're not 100% sold that he is evil because God has to warn them later. We don't know all the kind of background there. But he has a conversation with them. He wants to know when they saw the star, no doubt because he wants to try to guess and approximate the child's age, because we know he's going to do whatever he can to get rid of this threat to his kingdom. So he has this private conversation then, already having some of this other information in the background with the wise men. Verse 8. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. So he sends them ahead, hoping that they'll do his work for him, find him, and then let him know, acting as if he's interested and even wanting to worship him. Now, we know, of course, that's the furthest thing from his mind. But he is, he is hatching his plan here as they are going now to find the Christ. Verse 9. And when they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. So they leave, and it says they see the star. They are exceedingly joyful. This has been directing them. And it says that it went before them. The language literally talks about it traveling, not just them reading the stars. This is a supernatural event. And it comes And it says, it stood over where the young child was, directly over the place where Mary and Joseph are. Again, encouraging these guys who have sincere hearts and intentions, God is going to get them there. He's helping them. They They might not have the information even that Herod had, who has his secret evil intentions. But these guys, they get led by the Lord to the proper place the proper time. Now it says, verse 11, when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They come, again, Christmas decoration, spoiler alert, he's not a baby at this point. Most of us kind of know this. This is later on. He is a young child at this point. He's in the house, not the manger, and probably a couple years old. He is still a child, but it's not the typical Christmas scene that we would see. And I I want you to see here again, as Matthew writes, Christ is, 
the center of the picture. Mary is not the focus. Notice the child is the focus. The star stops not where Mary and Joseph are, where the young child was. When they come in, they're not looking at Mary and Joseph. It says, the young child with Mary, his mother. The, the child is the focus. That's the center of the picture. Everything is being brought. The story is about him. They're being brought. The star leading them. As they enter in, the child becomes the focus. And their response when they find him is to worship. And that worship is accepted, not rejected. When worship is given to an improper person, to angels, even John falls down to worship an angel. An angel says, don't do that to me. It's always rejected. Here, the worship is accepted because it is the Messiah. Because he is who he says he is. And they offer their gifts, the gold, the frankincense, and myrrh. Um, certainly, there's, there's pictures there, gold always tied to royalty. Nebuchadnezzar even building the statue of himself, all gold. Frankincense, most often tied to the priests and priestly offerings. That would picture his deity and his high priestly character, myrrh, usually tied to, in the scriptures, the anointing oil, which Christ was anointed for his service. Both as kings were anointed, prophets were anointed, priests were anointed in all their service. Um, certainly a picture of the Spirit on him, his humanity under the lordship of the Father. And here, after they give their gifts, it says in 12, they being divinely warmed in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. They give their gifts. They are unaware of the evil kind of lurking behind them. But the God who never slumbers or sleeps steps into their sleep, gives them a warning, takes care of the whole situation, and says, okay, go home a different way. Don't, don't talk to that guy. You know, you don't want to be around him. And protects them and guides their path. And he keeps them in this whole picture. And all of this, <clears throat> I think the point here of the story, what we're supposed to see is and emulate is their worship of Christ, their faith expressed in coming to worship this child. The whole, the whole picture, the direction of it, their leading, their appearance, they come, they do that, and then they're gone. They're not coming back in another scene. There's not other things tied to it. This is, this is what we're given of them through the Holy Spirit. So what I just want to, I just want to make a couple comments now on uh, what I think we learn from these guys and what we're supposed to take from this scene and particularly from their worship. And the first is simply this, their worship was worth the effort to them. These wise men are willing to travel a great distance at a great effort and at great cost because their object was great. They, they weren't complaining about the personal difficulty because who they were coming to worship was great. And I'll, very easily, you and I can give up in our worship or surrender our worship 
we don't we don't ask, seek, and knock steadfastly very often uh, because we lose sight of who He is. They're not they're not crushed by their efforts because it's not about them; it's about Him. They are coming to give; they are not coming to get. And very often when we come to Christ, even in our worship, if we're not coming to give, then our worship becomes self-focused and it, we're coming to get something. Uh, the whole church world nowadays is, is literally moved by what people want. We want to give them what they want. What do people in this area want? Let's vote and see what people want. It's, and it's all kind of cultured and conformed to people's particular tastes. And it feeds this whole idea of we're supposed to get something. I'm not going to go to that church if they don't have better pizza in the coffee shop. You know, or I don't like this, or I want this thing, or I want... As if, as if the central thing is not the central thing. It just becomes about us. Picture anybody traveling to worship Christ and complaining about what they're not getting. You you understand? It it puts the whole thing into perspective there. No, in their worship, they are coming to give. It can't be a self-focused way. They're, They're coming to offer to him because he's worthy of it. They're not coming there to get something from him. And there are there were people that approached Jesus in that way. A few. We got a little boy who's willing to give his lunch, even though he's not going to get anything back. Little did he know. We have Mary. We just looked at with her alabaster box. She wasn't looking to get something back from Jesus. We have the one leper out of the ten who came back to give thanks. He had already gotten what he wanted, but he came back to give Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, once Christ is crucified, they give. They're ready to step out from their fear. It's not about what they're going to get from him anymore. They think he's dead. Little did they know. And every once in a while, you see one of those moments come. And the Bible takes note of those. And this is another one of those moments. These guys travel some distance, through some effort. And they, they go through whatever they had to go through. We don't know the whole story. But whatever they were willing to do, they were willing to do it so that they could give to him because he's worthy of it. And Jesus is willing to give to us. It's not to say he just is selfish. We know that's not true. He is our helper. And he, he helped people all the time in his life Story after story after story we see in the Gospels, his willingness to help. But he's more than just a helper. He's also our God. And how sad is it when people came to him and got the help they were looking for and walked away not knowing who he really was? And these men came in faith, looking at who he was and offering their worship And he gives freely, Jesus gives freely, and he helps freely. But it's sad if people today leave without knowing who he really is. Fortunately, you know, he's very patient. His disciples started 
following him, and they gave. They left their, their careers, some of their standing in society. But they thought they were getting something. They slowly, slowly had their minds changed. And Jesus is willing to walk with us for a while. Let us begin to figure out who he really is. They're in a boat with him, and he tells the wind and the waves to cease, and it listens. And they're like, what kind of guy is this that the wind and the waves listen to him? Their eyes begin to open up about his worth. They get help. He gives to us. He's gracious. But the best thing he can give is his person. And when we see his person, when we see who he is, when we see that he is actually worthy of everything, we start coming to give, not to get. Lord, I'm just here to worship. That's essentially what we're doing. I mean, you're not even here just to listen to me. I'm, I'm here to worship too. And you use your gifts and people are all over this building and this is mine. And we're, we're all here together around a central figure that we believe is here. That Christ dwells in us through his spirit. When he was on earth, he was at the temple. He called his body the temple, and they didn't really like that. Destroy it, I'll raise it up. Because he was. He was God's presence on earth. And then when he ascended, he sent his spirit, and he said, you're the temple. He's not looking for a physical temple on earth. He's here with us. And when we come to him, we come to give because he's deserving of anything we could possibly give. And, and when I'm self-focused, the effort becomes an issue. But when my eyes turn to him, then it turns to worship. And I come to give it because he's worthy of it. He doesn't even have to command it. He could say, let there be light. He created the world. He could let there be the earth and let there be the water, the seas, fish, birds. He never had to say, let there be worship because he was there didn't have to say it, just happened. The angels worshiped him when he made the stars also. It's just a response when you see who he is. These guys saw him in faith. And first, their worship was worth the effort. And ours should be as well because he's worthy of it. The second thing I think we see is their worship did cost them something. These wise men were personally willing to offer great gifts. They didn't worship Jesus with their second best, as David said. In 2 Samuel 24, 24, David would say, the king said to Arun, he's trying to purchase something. No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. He David's saying, I'm not going to offer God nothing. I'm going to offer him my best. That's, that's what I want to offer him. Uh, F.W. Borum talks about going to New Zealand. He was kind of in a rural area, and he ended up young guy at this church. He took over, and he talks about a couple of his deacons that he had. They were older men, He's, and he talks about appreciating them so much. But he said there was a particular deacon there that would get paid every week, and they got paid in coins, you know, not just a check. And he said, 
I always remember him, he would, he would go through his coins and the first thing he would do is he would pick out all the ones that looked the best and set them aside for the offering. And he just, he just said, it was a, this, this guy said, I want to give God my best, even in the way they looked. And he just talked about what a blessing this individual was in the way that they worshiped the Lord. And, you know, I think it's easy for these guys, you know, they, you can look and say, I don't have gold or frankincense or myrrh. Uh, I, I don't have anything to offer like that, which is fine. These guys are worshiping in the place that they are at. God has them there, and he has you and I in the place that we are at. And whether it's our time, our effort, our relationships, any, you're, if you're going to worship God, if you're truly going to make a focus of that, it is going to cost you something. We have to even just organize our week to make time to worship the Lord. Make him a priority over other things. Believers all over the world step directly into danger to worship the Lord. We're going to worship Christmas Eve, looking forward to those services, but all around the world, Christmas Eve and Christmas, believers are going to worship, and for many of them, it's the most dangerous service they might go to during the year. Because people know. But they're going to go. Because he's worth it. And they're, they're willing to offer him something costly. And they're not going to give him their second best. And I think for you and I, it's just a challenge. Where we are, it's very easy to assume that we're worshiping him, but to offer him second best because we're still offering him something. Where these guys, they come and they offer the best of what they have to offer. Kingly gifts for a king from kingly individuals. It was what he was worthy of. Third, I would say this, their worship was in loving contrast to the people around them. And I, I would say don't overlook this because it's, it's not always easy to worship in a way that everyone else isn't. Not that they were crazy or something, but it's easy to feel like you're a fanatic or overzealous. These guys are doing something that nobody else is doing. The crowds don't know what's going on. There were some shepherds, I guess, who had told a story. Mary and Joseph, that's a little different. But it doesn't seem like many people are that interested. At least Matthew doesn't give us that kind of idea. And the person who's the most interested is the one who wants to kill him. And Herod sees Jesus as an obstacle in life. He's a picture of somebody who, anybody who wants to actually worship Jesus, spiritual realities are something that, even though they surround them, are going to ruin their life. And they'll do whatever they can to get rid of those spiritual realities. That's, that's one of the group there in the world. We see the religious leaders, they have head knowledge but they have no true sincerity of heart. They're representative of people that can teach others about him, but don't take one step in the way that they should walk because they can immediately answer the question, but they don't go anywhere with the wise men. They have all the head knowledge and no life reality. 
they've curated their lives so that really they don't have to depend on God. And it's very easy for us, I think, really, we live in a, a position where we're very much like the Pharisees. We have good doctrine. If somebody asks us a Bible question, we could probably quote the correct verse. But the question is, do we have the heart that these wise men showed? Head knowledge never guarantees spiritual realities. A.W. Tozer said in his book, The Price of Neglect, a longing soul with scanty theological knowledge is in better position to meet God than a self-satisfied soul, however deeply instructed in the scriptures. You know, Paul would say to the Corinthians when he wrote 1 Corinthians, and they were a church that had all types of problems, and he dealt with all types of church issues. At the end, he just says, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed, Maranatha. Like, if you don't love Jesus, I can't help you. And at the end of Ephesians, which has some of the highest, most privileged things that are written in the scripture, he says this, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. We can talk about the highest things in spiritual realms, but... If you don't love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity, I can't help you. I find it interesting that he closes both of those letters in that way. You see, the wise men, they don't know the scriptures like the Pharisees do, but they do have a sincere heart to worship him. And what happens is that one becomes a tool for the devil. They actually end up helping the guy who wants to get rid of Jesus. And the others are guided and guarded and helped by God. Where is our heart? You know, we got to be careful. We don't become upstanding religious people with no heart to personally seek and worship Jesus. Satan's looking for people like that. They become very helpful for his purposes. And it's very easy to look around and say, if I'm doing what everybody else is doing, it's okay. But the minute the Lord starts to stir your heart, even in nice Christian realms, the minute you start to push the status quo, do something that's a little bit out of the ordinary, then people start to question you. Why are you doing that? Seems kind of fanatical. Well, why you got to leave here to go all the way over to follow this star? Can't you sit home and watch the baby online? Like, what's the big deal? How, how come you got to go through all this effort? Why you, you, get, you start to go, why are you going to church again? What, when, when somebody is still, what are you getting from that? Right, that's, see, that's the mindset. Where I'm not here to get, I'm here to give. And it's very easy to settle into the status quo. But if I have a heart to worship him, then it's going to look like something unique in my life. For some reason, God led these guys through this star, and it's really cool that that happened. We don't know all the details. We just know this is how he did it. And their heart to worship worked out in a very particular way. And in fact, it's really encouraging, and we're still talking about it thousands of years later. It was the same thing with Mary in the alabaster box. 
that, that if I have a sincere heart to worship him, I don't have to know everything. I'm not going to know everything. Nobody could be a theological expert on everything, and even the guys who are theological experts are only theological experts on their thing. Nobody can be the expert on everything. We're all just learning. Never fully coming to that full knowledge of the truth. We learn true things about God every day, and we should. But my heart, my mind will never know everything. But my heart can be sincere. And if I have a sincere heart and I don't know everything, I'm still okay. I should be learning. I should love God with all my mind. But I need to love him with all my heart too. And I can't settle in with good facts and a status quo and begin to think that I'm okay. If my heart is sincere in worshiping him, it's probably going to personally take me to steps that other people are not taking. And these guys were willing to do that. They're willing to take that step to worship him. So it's wonderful to know that the king has come and for us to know that we could freely worship him. And we know a whole lot more than these wise men. But God, give us their heart. Because if we have that, we'll be all right. We'll be all right. And lastly, I think their worship, the wonderful thing about it is that it was full of faith. The object of their worship, again, a little child is repeated. A child, a child, a child. He was a king, not yet a king. And they knew that. How many would have felt foolish worshiping a boy? It looks foolish on the outside. It's a beautiful story for us, but we're so close to it. This is them, and, it, and people live next to Aaron Joseph. They see this little kid running around, and all of a sudden these guys who are kings come and bow down and worship. Probably looks pretty foolish from the outside. It, it is only faith that would cause somebody to do something like that. Faith in the word of God. They seem to literally have felt privileged to worship him early. And God is pleased in it and he marks it down for us. Jesus was the rightful heir to the throne of David, born of the royal line of David, but with divine blood. He entered to an ignoble family. He was in an infamous marriage. There's a stigma there, we know, because Mary was pregnant. A little town, a poor heritage. There, everything on the outside will kind of press against them actually taking this step. And yet, the house of David seemed destitute, but there emerged, Isaiah tells us, a tender plant as a root out of dry ground to fulfill the promises of God. Second Samuel 7, 12 and 13 said, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. And Luke tells us that the angel came and he said, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus, 
and he will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The angel said he's the fulfillment of this promise, this child. And Jesus embraced so much humility and obscurity on our behalf. He was the royal king, and he should have been recognized that way. And by most, he wasn't. And you know what? He still embraces the same today because he's still the king. But people don't see him that way. And for us to come and worship him can still seem crazy to some of the world who don't know, who don't have faith in the word of God and what it says about this child. But I think it's just important to know that in the end, God's desire in the Christmas story, as we see here particularly, is not to stir up our compassion for the baby in the manger. It's to stir up and demand our faith in the child, the Son of God. Those are two different things, right? The Christmas season, people like to talk about good feelings, giving, being generous, decorations, family time, good vibes. All those things are great. But that's not the Bible's focus. Again, as we read this, the focus is always the same thing. Seeing the child through the father's eyes. Seeing the son as what God says he is. Giving him the honor that the father gives him. And anything meaningful in the story happened that way when Mary and Joseph begin to see this child for who he was. When the shepherds hear the message about who this child was. When these kings show up and give this child the credit for who he was. He's the focus of the whole thing. The royal heir of God's promises who would both bear our iniquities and set up David's kingdom. And if we see him that way, it becomes very easy to worship. It's not supposed to just stir up good feelings for us. It's supposed to cause us to say, my faith is in the right place. It's in him. The Gentiles should worship him that way. The Jews should have worshipped him that way. The world that didn't know him and the world that hated him should worship him that way. We should see him as he is. He's precious. He's honored of the Father. Somehow these men were drawn. They knew that. Numbers 24, interesting prophecy from Balaam of all people, says this, 24:17. I see him but not now. I behold him but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. Interesting, isn't it? I think you and I can say something much better. We see him both now and near. We have much more clarity. We've been given much more privilege. We have way more knowledge. And even if we feel like we don't, what this story tells me is, if my heart is right, God will help me. He'll get me there. 
If I need it, he will literally send me supernatural help. Lord, I want to worship you. I don't even know how. He'll help you out. If he, if he has to send you supernatural help, he will do it. He will guide you. Like, God, but there's these influences around me that would pressure me. Guess what? He'll protect you from those things. If he needs to give you a dream, he'll give you a dream. He'll keep you. He'll protect you. He'll, gu he'll guard you. God, nobody else is doing it. Maybe that's partially true. But there's somebody somewhere that's doing it. And there's always people that you don't know about that God has as servants that are there worshiping him, following him, trying to do the same. And no matter what else happens in the story, the question just comes down to what he says right in the beginning. We have come to worship him. Is that true of us? Can we say it in faith? Lord, I'm just here to give you the worship that you deserve. So what I wanted to do is this. Uh, I wanted to share something to help us put our minds back on him, particularly in this time. But um, if I can have the worship team, I asked Tom just to get a couple extra songs for the end. I, I thought it would be weird to like share about worshiping and then make it real quick in the end and everybody has to run out, right? So I said, if you can pick two or three extra songs, I'll pray and let's give us an extra 10 minutes here, 10, 15 minutes here at the end, just to actually do that and to come and give him what he deserves, right? There's a lot of places in the world where Christ is not recognized for who he is. But it's, it's his grace that you and I can be here in his house. And I have no doubt that it's pleasing to him when we offer him our sincere praise, that there's a spot on the face of the earth that he can look and he can receive that. And we know there's more than one. But to be a part of that is a privilege. And it's a story worth telling, no matter where you are in the history of the world. So let's stand, let's pray, and then we'll worship him. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace toward us. We thank you for your patience with us. Lord, I pray that you would be magnified in our hearts and in our minds. Uh, there are endless ways, Lord, that we can see how good you are, how true you are, how holy that you are God, Son of Man, and that you gave yourself for us, and that in the ages to come, we're going to be learning about your kindness and your grace and the riches that we have in you. So, Lord, you know where we're at. If, if you need to expand our hearts to love you more, do that you need to open up our eyes, Lord. Give us light to see you more. Do that. If you need to cleanse us and wash us so that we don't grieve you in your spirit, do that, Lord. And we pray that you would be honored in this place and in our hearts. 
We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Sing you, Lord, are worthy.